Amen. If you are comfortably able, if you'd remain standing to honor God's word, which comes to us this morning from Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, come, go down to the potter's house and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house and there he was working at his wheel. The vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel as seemed good to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me, can I not do with you, O house of Israel, just as this potter has done, says the Lord, just like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. But if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will change my mind about the disaster that I intended to bring on it. And at another moment I may declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it. But if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will change my mind about the good that I had intended to do to it. Now therefore... Say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Look, I am a potter shaping evil against you and devising a plan against you. Turn now, all of you, from your evil way and amend your ways and your doings. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. In our series thus far on the book of Jeremiah, we have seen what a painful and difficult task Jeremiah was called to do. He had to preach against his very own people, and what a harsh word it was, seemingly. He had to challenge them on their behavior and call into question their loyalties. As we might expect, Jeremiah is a lonely man who was hated by the people who claimed that he was a traitor. Jeremiah spoke about God's anger. He spoke about God's coming discipline and judgment. It was a message that no one wanted to hear. Better to listen to our priests and our so-called prophets who keep telling us everything is just fine. They would say, they would say this to themselves and to each other. We have good priests. We have good prophets. They're, they're not concerned at all about our behavior. Well, as you can imagine, Jeremiah is miserable about all of this. This is a hard task. And in this section of Jeremiah, chapters 18 through 20, he, he cries out to God, seeking understanding, seeking vengeance, seeking justice, seeking something, anything that would help him make sense of this situation. He's preaching judgment and warning and coming doom, and no one seems to be listening. And it's left Jeremiah throwing his hands up in the air saying, what in the world is going on here? And so God makes him several promises, but he begins with an illustration of the potter and the clay. Let us pray. Lord, these these words are yours. These are eternal words. And so we would humbly ask now that you would speak them to us, that you would be our teacher, that our minds, our hearts would be open and receptive so that we might be molded and shaped by your living word We humbly ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
God says that he is like a potter, and it tells us that God is a creative God. God told Jeremiah, up on your feet, go to the potter's house. When you get there, I will tell you what I have to say. So we read in verse 3, so I went to the potter's house. Sure enough, the potter was there, working away at his wheel. Whenever the pot the potter was working on turned out badly, as sometimes happens when you're working with clay, the potter would simply start over, use the same clay to make another pot. Potters make things like bricks, lamps, toys, cooking pots, even jewelry. Um, They used pottery for so many different things back in those days. It was one of the earliest and most widespread and familiar of, of ancient Israel's crafts. You would have had pottery places, homes that did pottery all over the place. Um, This was nothing unique. Um, In fact, Israelites apparently even mass-produced some uh, both useful and attractive pottery. So when Jeremiah talks about the potter and the pottery of the Old Testament, he uses imagery that's just very familiar. Everyone knows what that looks like. Uh, Someone suggested it might be like we have a gas station on every corner. We know how they work. We know what what you do there. It's just very, very familiar to us. His teaching reflects the freedom that a potter has. It's a creative process to reshape the pottery while it's still on the wheel. If this pottery doesn't turn out the way he planned, it's clay. You can, you can collapse it and mold it and start over, free to shape it into something that, that seems better to the potter. Once the potter finishes doing that, he or she allows his pottery to dry, then puts the pottery in a wheel a second time so it can do even more shaping. It's a very involved process. And it's a very personal process. It's a process that has the hands of the potter integral and close and, and personal with what is being formed and shaped. It takes creativity and skill. And God says, Jeremiah, I want you to go down and watch that process. And he says, you need to understand something. I am actively shaping a nation. I'm actively engaged. I know what I am doing. He is the one that moves and controls and dictates. His hands are guiding and molding and shaping. We may ignore that truth. We may deny that truth. We may even choose to refuse that reality. But God is still shaping and molding your life and shaping and molding the, the life of this church, this community, this nation, and our world. Whether we like it or are engaged in it or acknowledge it, he's still actively working. This is what he does. It's God's nature and it is his character. He is engaged and he has a will and a want on where this congregation, where this family, where this nation, where this church is going. And he will mold and shape and do what is ever necessary. Will Willimon noted this a couple years ago. He noted that the president of Yale University had a gathering with the incoming freshmen at Yale University, incoming class, and the president said these words to these new freshmen. He said, we cannot supply you with a philosophy of education any more than we can supply you with a philosophy of life. This has got to come from you from your own active learning, from your own choices, your own decisions. Think for yourself. 
Now, he said, when it comes to history, if you say Columbus discovered America in 1805, well, we will impose our beliefs on you there because we have some knowledge about that. When it comes to physics, if you say E equals MC squared, we will impose our beliefs on you there because we believe that there is knowledge about that. But when it comes to values, wisdom, goodness, what is right, good luck. Think for yourself. Isn't that remarkable? Yale University did not start that way. Not at all. Yale University started with an acknowledgement of God and God's activity and God's shaping and molding in the university, and the lives of the students. In other words, Willman says, the university has absolutely no clue why you were supposed to be here and what you were doing here. <clears throat> we have a smorgasbord of courses. We have a great buffet line of faculty. And whether that adds up to something called wisdom by the time you graduate, we have no idea. And by the way, this will all cost you $70,000. <laughs> Think about that message for a minute. To these bright, bright students, think for yourself. And we are thinking for ourselves. And how's that going? How's that collective thought going in our nation right now? A whole lot of people deciding on whatever value they personally appreciate, thinking for themselves. It's not going well. Israel had so many years of self-thinking. They had abandoned God. They had denied that God was active and that, that His laws and His ideas and what His promises, they had ignored it for so long. They had forgotten God's hand and God's involvement in their lives and it turned them into a national mess. They were exploiting the poor and the orphan. They were destroying themselves, their souls, and their hearts because they were worshiping false gods and those gods were were not delivering at all. And they were hurting their neighbors and they had no time for God worship. They had taken God out of the equation and everyone was suffering. And God says, but you need to understand, I am engaged. I'm like a potter and I'm shaping you and I'm moving you. You, You're denying it. You're not seeing it. You're not recognizing it. But I'm still here doing this. When I was at in seminary, at Princeton Seminary, they had these people who were studying there, and they, they didn't teach. They were these scholars, but they were given a title. There were several of them, and they were called theologian in residence. I, I always thought that was a really cool thing. Like, you don't have to teach. You don't have to write. You're just sit around all day and think about God. That's a really cool job description. Theologian in residence. Like, what do they do? I mean, this was kind of, wow, how do you get to become a theologian in residence? That was a, I always thought that would be a really good gig. When I graduated, the president of the seminary gave us a speech to all the graduating seniors. And he said, you know those theologians in residence, they're here thinking big thoughts about God. He said, well, guess what? You're going out now to the church And wherever God takes you, you are now going to be a theologian in residence there. And he said, when you arrive and you get there, I want you to ask questions 
what is God doing here? What would God's presence look like here? What is God's future for us in this congregation here? What hurts the heart of God and makes him weep here? Where does God laugh and sing and have joy when he sees it happening here? And I understood. But it's more than a pastoral role. It's also your role in your family. How is God shaping this family? Lord, what are you doing with us and what do you want from us here? It's a process that engages the scripture and prayer and a lot of listening, and it's wonderful. And it acknowledges that I acknowledge that God is active and present. But we also discover that God can is creative, but he can recreate. God's message came to me. Can I do just as this potter does, people of Israel? God's decree. Watch this potter in the same way that this potter works as clay. I work on you, people of Israel. At any moment, I may decide to pull up a people or a country by the roots and get rid of them. And with this illustration, God is letting Jeremiah know that he is still sovereign. He has the right to not only create his people, but he can also recreate his people. And then he promises to do just that. But Jeremiah still struggles because his outer circumstances are still harsh. And the inner turmoil is still overwhelming. And he's asking these questions. What can God do? What will he do? Now, it's important and helpful to remember that God is sovereign. God is free to do what God needs to do. Although... That acknowledgement isn't always easy, especially in times of struggle or peril or suffering. But it is critical to place our lives in the context of God's direction and shaping. See, God's goal is to shape and form a people. And if it's not working, he can start over. He can say, well, this clay is not formable. I'm going to bring it down and we're going to start over. We have to understand his role in that process. He will use any means necessary, even discipline when necessary to get us on the right track. Not like the people of Israel. I I don't want to hear pastors talk about God's discipline and judgment and, and what he can do and how upset he gets. But behind that is a God saying, I am so determined to get them and form them and shape them and get them home where they need to be that I'll use any means possible or necessary. That's not always easy from our perspective. But behind that sovereignty of God is a God that is engaged and is wanting us to be his people. We've titled this sermon series, When Things Fall Apart. Have you been there? Have you been there in your life when things fall apart? Julie and I, I, I've shared this with you, but our our oldest son has severe special needs. 
And there have been moments in our life raising Andrew, who is a wonderful blessing and a gift to our family, but there are days because he can't communicate and because of behavior that you're just hoping to get to the end of the day. There are days when you get to the very end of the day thinking, during the day you're thinking, I, we may not have make it to the end of the day. And at the very last, you toast and you say, we made it. <laughs> now, Julie is a little bit more, um, how should I put this? She is a little bit more uh, expressive about her feelings than I am. Why are you nodding like that? Don't do not like that. That's <laughs> She's a little bit more. Sometimes Julie has the gift of saying the quiet parts out loud, we say. <laughs> and I mean this as she has a gift. She's a better express her feelings than I am. On several occasions after really hard days, from a very deep place, she has uttered and said out loud, why is God doing this to us? It's an unanswerable question. We don't know. Have you been there? Have you been at the end of your rope? Have things fallen apart? It's a really good question to ask. Why is God doing this to us? You may not get an answer. We may not know. But it is an acknowledgement that I am staying engaged with this God. And that's a powerful, powerful thing. It's a wonderful thing. We may look back. We may see over the course of history and go, look at what God was doing. We never would have known it at the time. But I think far more important is to engage this God. Jeremiah did. Is to stay connected to him and say, God, your ways are bigger than our ways. We don't understand, but we do know that you are a potter that is shaping and moving and directing. And you will use any means necessary because we trust at the end of the day that you are a God that loves us. We also acknowledge that we tend to stray. What are you doing, God, in this situation? Are you wanting it to recreate? Or maybe tear down? See, if it's God's doing, then it's good. It may be hard, but it is good. So let us ask the question then, what is our role in this process? I believe we might say our role is our willed passivity. So tell the people of Judah and citizens of Jerusalem my message. Danger, I'm shaping doom against you, laying plans against you. Turn back from your doomed way of life. Straighten out your lives. See, those who believe that God has already determined what, for instance, you know, if you believe that God has already determined what socks you're going to put on in the morning, um, they find this text hard to swallow. If, on the other hand, you believe that God uses the choices we make to sovereignly carry out God's will, then this text begins to make some sense. You see, we just talked about how God is shaping and molding and directing and doing all this, but then we also discover God saying, you have a choice. You have a part to play in this process. We've heard this in this series over and over again. Repent, turn around. You can change the course of what's about to happen. 
Israel has the power to shape her future by walking in God's ways. However, he also warns that if Israel continues to neglect her moral responsibilities, God will ensure disaster, her destruction. So our text ends with Jeremiah once again pleading and begging the people, repent. You have a role to play in this. God has graciously given you the opportunity to participate, to shape your future by being obedient. And Israel refused time and time again. There are a few notable exceptions, but mostly they turned even further away from God. I like this phrase, willed passivity. I don't think it was coined by Eugene Peterson, but he uses the word. He says this, he says, reverence is the operative word here. Odd, worshipful attentiveness, ready to respond in love and adoration. We do not learn our relationship with God out of a cocksure, arrogant knowledge of exactly what God wants, which then launches us into a vigorous cleanup campaign of the world on his behalf, in the course of which we shout orders at him, bossing him around and, so that he can assist us in accomplishing his will. Nor do we cower before him in scrupulous anxiety that fears offending him, only venturing a word or an action when explicitly commanded and at other times worrying endlessly of what we might have done to offend him. You see what's happening here. God says, I'm the potter, I'm molding clay, but the clay has a role to play. He gives us, he gives us freedom to obey, freedom to create. We are in his hands, but inside of his hands we're we have all kinds of opportunity to live our lives in, in creative, wonderful, expressive ways. It's a freeing process. Henry Nouwen is a Catholic priest, and he one time had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Someone set up an appointment with him with Mother Teresa. He had a half hour with Mother Teresa. Can you imagine? What do you, and he knew this was coming like a year in advance. You have a half hour with Mother Teresa. This Catholic priest, he was for a long, long time like thinking, okay, what am I going to say? Like, I got one shot here. <laughs> one opportunity. And when the day finally came, he just unloaded all of his anxiety on her. All of his fears, all of his worries, all of his concerns. What should I be doing? My future. What all this and these things I'm struggling with. He just unloaded all of it. Mother Teresa didn't say a word. And finally, at the end, she lifted up her head and she said, Henry, I think you should pray for an hour a day and don't do anything you know is wrong. She got up and walked out of the room. <laughs> I love that. That's reverence. That's reverence. She didn't say exactly the way you live your life and you need to get engaged in this ministry. She said, love God, spend an hour with Him a day, and then try and love the neighbor, serve Him. It is what it boils down to. Israel refused on both counts, time and time and time again. There's a way to walk through this life where we are reverent toward God. Walking through this life in a humble manner, knowing that He's moving and shaping and directing our path, 
But also, we don't have to walk with anxiety because we discovered that this potter is good and he loves us. And even his discipline, when it comes, is meant to bring us closer to him, ultimately. In Jeremiah, the next chapter, chapter 19, we're going to read that God tells Jeremiah to actually take one of the pots that he saw the potter making and go preach another sermon. And this time, in the middle of that sermon, God said, I want you to take that pot and throw it down on the ground and smash it to pieces to say to the nation of Israel, it's over. It's over. We're not doing this anymore. My discipline is coming. I think about what Jeremiah must have thought at that moment, thinking there's no more hope. The shattered pieces of that pot on the ground. It probably was a lot like what the disciples felt on Saturday when they saw Jesus' body broken in pieces. But what they didn't know and what they weren't prepared for was what happened the next day. When our Lord, our God took the broken pieces and he resurrected them into new life. It's grace. It's forgiveness. It comes to us as a powerful reminder and God's Holy Spirit is present in these elements to tell us that we can live this life honoring Him, free to create and to love and to trust in His sovereignty. This is my body, He said, take this as a reminder that I was broken for you and for your salvation. This is the best of all possible news we could ever receive. Friends, you're invited to this feast. All who confess their sins, all who trust in Jesus as Savior, are invited to come to this feast which He has prepared. Let us pray.